we look at things a bit wider than motorsport here in part three of our interview with Cameron Kelleher about working at the sports desk in the Daily Mail and Sunday Times until eventually being part of the Volvo Ocean Race. Cameron, um, working for the Daily Mail, how many years uh, were you working for the Daily Mail and what I started out in journalism in the UK at the height of the troubles, shall we call it, with uh, the Murdoch organisation. So I I was like this hairy ass boy from uh, Australia who was trained in um, electronic newspaper production, which the UK was still coming, or Fleet Street and the UK were still coming to terms with. So I was quite well placed and they were taking on a lot of freelance sub-editors so my first role first job was um on the sunday times at the whopping plant that murdoch had built fortress whopping they used to call it and we used to be bussed into those roles and into that plant in armor-plated buses because of the strike action that was happening right across london actually not just um outside the plant and so i did some a few sun uh, saturday afternoon shifts on um on the Sunday Times, um, I covered off football or soccer as we know it, rugby union, rugby league, tennis, golf, kind of a raft of sports. But um, whenever the um, uh, the motor racing correspondent filed his copy, I was the kind of go-to because I was probably the only one on the sports desk that showed any interest in it. So I, actually, I felt good about that because it was something that I was obviously uh, interested in. Um, and then I went and joined the Times and then uh, ultimately joined the Independent uh, and from the independent, which was um, independent, was like a open plan office, um, no regimentation whatsoever, left leaning newspaper in terms of its politics. So I, I kind of went from chalk to cheese to the Daily Mail. But I had to quickly learn sports that I hadn't had an interest in previously. I always laugh now when I think back to my di- my time at the Times on the sports desk. I was sub editing stories about carriage driving and polo and gliding, um, which I had no concept of whatsoever. So, yeah, cricket, motorsport have always been my, my, my passion. So I focused on those sports in terms of either sub-editing or writing, but I also touched rugby and other sports along the way. If I remember rightly, speaking of the Daily Mail, I think they sponsored speedway events in the, the British Speedway League, if memory serves uh, correctly going back in time. Yeah, they did. There was a lot of newspaper involvement in motorsport sponsorship in those days. And since then, you know, Daily Express were, would sponsor events at um, at Silverstone, um, whether that be Formula One or touring car uh, in particular. Um, you're right, Daily Mail and Speedway. Not so much today. It's more it's more the auto sports, the auto cars and the um, the specialist magazines that, that are involved in, in sponsorship these days, not so much the newspapers. At the FAA, you were working, I guess, primarily as the media delegate for GT racing. Is there a big difference in egos between GT racing at that top level and and Formula One? There was a massive sea change for me when I went from the Formula One paddock to the GT paddock. It was was a real breath of fresh air, to be honest with you. You know, there's been several books written about the Formula One paddock known as the Viper Pit, and there's a lot of self- obsession and self-absorption and there's a lot of self-focus in Formula One, which I didn't find in in GT racing. I found it so refreshing to go into a paddock where everyone, everybody and everything was accessible. And, you know, more importantly, the drivers understood that 
they weren't F1 drivers, but if they ever wanted to be F1 drivers, they had to give a little bit more of themselves. So they were much more open in terms of throwing themselves into PR events or giving time for media interviews and much more relaxed atmosphere. In terms of the, the human interaction, much more general interplay between teams uh, than there was in um, in Formula One. But that's not to say that the competition wasn't um, any less dramatic or competitive. It was highly competitive. But at the same time, it was it was a much nicer, shall I say, atmosphere than what I'd experienced in Formula One. Before I move on to something that is close to your heart right now, which is rally sport, on your CV, you have a fascinating seven-year period in one of those great daring brave events that at the time was becoming extremely dangerous. And that is the Volvo Ocean Race where the uh, sailors were getting themselves into perilous trouble. Yeah. Um, so I was uh, I was working for an agency, a sports agency. I was managing Mild 7, which was a sponsor of uh, the Benetton team in those days, a, a Japanese tobacco brand. And I was working with Shell and Ferrari and a couple of other sponsors. And out of the blue, I, I, I got a call from a recruitment consultancy asking me whether I'd be interested in a job as a communications director for the Volvo Ocean Race. In the early days, that was known as the Whitbread Round the World Race. And it might sound strange for someone to go from motorsport to, to sailing, but actually I, um, I had dabbled in sailing. Dad and I built a 12-foot dinghy uh, when we lived in Adelaide, sailed at a local Henley Sailing Club. The relationship didn't last long because I was skipper and he was my crew. So it was um, a lot of difference of opinion in terms of how the boat should be sailed. So that didn't last long. So I, I, I dabbled in sailing and I understood America's Cup and round the world race and, and I'd followed it. Uh, from afar, so I I went for the interview. I got I was lucky enough to get the job, and it was it was a challenge in a way because sailing is a very incestuous sport, and they talk in technical terms which nobody else understands. Basically, so I would sit down and talk to a skipper of a boat and interview him for a piece for the website, and he he'd just trot out all these numbers, and I would I'd stop him and say, "Well, hang on a minute." If we're trying to take this sport out into a wider audience, way beyond the geeks and the traditional sailors, then you need to start talking about sail area in terms of tennis courts. So instead of trotting out these numbers of, of the dimensions of the sails, why don't you just say to people, well, yeah, the sail area we use on this boat is the size of three tennis courts. And he's like, oh, yeah, okay. So he never he never entered his consciousness that he he should talk in that manner before or try and talk about the highly technical aspects of sailing in a um, easily digestible sense. So so they did, and that kind of went through the whole portfolio of, of teams and sponsors. Actually, one of the things I introduced at Volvo Ocean Race, which I think is probably one of my proudest moments, is by its nature, ocean racing takes place out of sight, out of mind. And at some points during the course of the 79,000 nautical miles that ocean race sailors travel around the world over nine months, they're three and a half thousand miles away from landfall. So the only contact they have is with race control through video calls and through radio dialogue. And that's that's about it. So I introduced an onboard reporter or an embedded reporter into the crew. So in those days, they had 10 crew members. The media crew member, as he became known, was the 11th. But to take part in, in any sailing task whatsoever, their job was to sit there and wait for all hell to break loose and to catalogue it on video or through um, audio 
or, um, or through blogs. And so we had a, an embedded report on every every boat that went round in 2005-06 race. And our numbers went through the roof in terms of audience engagement and, and exposure. So yeah, it was it was a great time. I, I was involved with the race from 2004 to 2009. It was, again, it was fascination I had with the daring of these guys that can be at sea for, in some cases, on the longest legs, you know, 14 days on end, sleep deprivation, living off freeze-dried food, sharing uh, space with another nine human beings. And it was, yeah, I, I just felt like I had to tell that story. And it, was, it was only when those guys got into port and had been on the booze for a few hours that they were willing to open up. But just like the Formula One drivers, you know, you talk to a Formula One driver and ask him to, to discuss the topic of fear and quite naturally he'll shy away from it. You know, Jackie always used to say to me, well, as a racing driver, you've got to compartmentalize things and fear is one of those things you put in a box and you, you lock it and you put it away forever and you never go there. Because if you did, it shows weakness to the opposition and it also brings doubts into your mind as to what you're doing is the right thing. Same for the sailors, you know, um, to try and explain what it's like to go through the the hours and hours of sleep deprivation. And, you know, in some cases in the middle of the Southern Ocean, to your point, Craig, those guys encounter like 60 knot winds and 14 meter seas. And it's just, I can't get my head around how, how that would be and, and what type of experience that would be. That's all we have time for this week on Inside Motorsport. Until next time round, keep smiling and bye for now. Inside Motorsport is produced by Thunder Media for the Community Radio Network.